The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. This is the last message that I'm bringing in the series we've pursued for many weeks now in the first and second letters of Peter. I intend to move on not to a book of Scripture, which is my usual pursuit with you, as you know, but rather a topic beginning next week, a topic that I haven't dealt with specifically or in an isolated fashion anyway for, I find, about 18 years. That's way too long to not deal with the subject of prayer. God-centered prayer will be a topical series that I'll take up next week and pursue for about a dozen weeks or so, Lord willing, into the fall. Listen now as I read the last major segment of Second Peter. As we've been studying these letters, Peter's wrapping up with the word therefore. He's been talking about the coming of Christ and the amazing things that will happen, not only to believers as they are judged and rewarded, but as even the earth is remade in that day, the last words in verse 13 we saw last time were these, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now hear this last portion of Second Peter beginning at verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these things, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures." You, therefore, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Someone said once something that sounds like a bit of a trivial remark, but the longer I think about it, the longer I think there's some wisdom in it. He said that the Christian life is like riding a bicycle. Either you keep on moving steadily forward or you fall off. Those are the only alternatives. And it is moving forward in the things of Christ that are encompassed, I believe, in Peter's concern to find that we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is spiritual growth, grace from God, not simply peddling as hard as we can, 
but grace from God that keeps us moving forward and advancing and going deeper in our discipleship with Christ. If we are, first of all, born of God, reborn in a new birth, then we must grow. If you were a farmer or a gardener, you know that if a plant is alive and it shows a green shoot or two poking out of the ground earlier in the spring, you expect by now that plant to be well along into its growth and bearing fruit. If you rejoiced at something you put in your garden and said, oh, look, there they are, the tomatoes or whatever was just emerging from the earth, you wouldn't be so jubilant now in late July if you came and there was still just that tiny little shoot coming out of the ground. You'd say, where's the plant? Where's the fruit? If you had life in your family in a child you had born, you bear a son and that son grows and you are proud, you show photographs, you tell people how proud you are of your child. But you would be concerned, I'm sure, if you bore that child and now after 18 years you were still buying that child's clothing at Babies R Us. You'd say, what's wrong? He's not growing. He was born, but he's not growing. Well, we begin, we began, that is, study of Peter's two New Testament letters, First and Second Peter, many weeks ago. And I want to remind you, we began with a theme, and the theme that's been in your bulletin on these, over these sermons as an umbrella theme is that of 1 Peter 1.3, which reads this way, According to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Born again to a living hope is what we've been considering, a new birth from a supernatural cause that God gives to every believer in Jesus Christ. And that rebirth then, he desires to see go forward in spiritual growth. Now, the last two weeks here in 2 Peter 3, we have been talking about the living hope part of that, the future part that hasn't come yet. And there are some things in 2 Peter 3 that are actually scary or rather dire sounding if they stood in isolation all by themselves. You could conceivably read 2 Peter 3.10 and be scared out of your wits that God's plan and his intent is to burn up the planet and leave it as a blackened cinder after a nuclear wasteland. But that's not what Second Peter 3.10 is about. The fire that God is talking about that we looked at last time is a, is a fire of cleansing, and we don't know exactly what that is going to look like or be like, but it's very clear that what God is doing is cleansing and purging that which is wrong, that which is polluted and bent and ruined by sin on the earth. He's going to remake it. He's going to discover or expose, verse uh, 10 says at the end, the, the works done on the earth will be exposed. Evil will be exposed and wiped out. And God will create a new place just as a metallurgist puts the gold in his crucible and refines it and purges out that which is evil. He'll leave our planet wonderful and new as a place where righteousness can dwell, verse 13 told us. There's a completeness spoken of in these kinds of prophetic words. We have to put them together with other words. 
we can go back to the book of Genesis and hear about the first creation that God made as it was pristine and beautiful in every aspect. And then mankind came and ruined it. But we read in places like this, 2 Peter 3 in Revelation, of how a wasted, polluted planet that was ruined in its own ways by human sin will be renewed and remade. Likewise, we could go back to Genesis and find man being an outcast from the Garden of Eden. But then we come and find in places of Revelation and other final predictions that man will see God's face and will not be an outcast. We will dwell with him intimately as we come to him through Christ. Well, history has already seen the fulfillment of so many things of our living hope. We've seen the birth of Christ in history by a miraculous means. We've seen the cross of Christ as that stupendous, unbelievable, and yet transformational act in history as he died in others' place. We've seen the resurrection of God's power upon the body and soul of his Son, bringing him alive. Now we say that in a sense, Second Peter 3 and Revelation and other texts like that tell us of the next great thing. What's the next great thing? The return of Christ as King and Lord and Judge. And yes, that will be accompanied by some rather stupendous signs and wonders that the Bible tells about. But through it all, believers will look up and rejoice and welcome that final day that's been announced all the way from the Old Testament forward that when Christ comes to be glorified. And so this last paragraph of Second Peter 3 is one that tells us really, I think, what do we do while waiting? We've already been told what's coming, but what do we do while we're waiting for it? How do we conduct our lives in light of the pending living hope we have of Christ's final return? Well, Peter speaks very directly about this in verse 14 as he says, first of all, be diligent about your walk with the Lord. Be diligent. Apply yourself. Watch yourself. Be aware of what you're doing. Approach it with your best efforts. Be diligent, it says, to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Let him discover you going about his business, looking that his grace and his works and his example are being applied in your daily life, that your life is at peace. I think he means with others, that you're not one who goes through the world stirring up troubles and controversies and you're all tangled up in, in wrong relations to other people because you're an antagonist to other people. Be diligent to be found without spot or blemish and at peace. Now, we can't keep that perfectly because we're not perfect people. We're still sinners. But we know we're forgiven people, and we have a new ability by the Holy Spirit, and we have the new directions of the Word of God, and we can see what it means to be Christ-like and to aim at a different life. It seems to me that it means to recognize your faults. Don't, don't have to come to the point where Christ comes and and you are suddenly devastated by saying, oh no, don't tell me my Savior sees me behaving like this. But rather that you already realize before he would discover you in uh, wrong 
uh, sinful modes that you would know yourself that you're out of alignment and you're seeking to do something about it. You're repenting. You're not like what the Scriptures earlier call the horse or mule that has to have its head yanked around or yanked hard in, in a direction to tell it where to go. I've never driven mules, but I'm told they're supposed to be hard to, to move, to get them to do what you want them to do. Now, maybe somebody will come. We, we surely have an expert mule driver. In the, we have an expert on everything in this congregation. I always hear from the experts, and somebody's going to say, mules are easy to drive if you know what you're doing, probably. But the Bible says, don't be like the horse or mule that has to have its head yanked to take it in the direction it ought to go. Be responsive to God and his words, and you won't be like the blots and blemishes. Chapter 2 called false teachers, blots and blemishes, because that's what their life and their behavior is like. Uh, They're reveling in the daytime and pursuing their own way and walking apart from God in every possible sense. You should be one who loves the law of God. Even though you know you're not saved by the law of God, I hope you know that, the gospel of grace is how we're saved by God's gift of Christ through faith. But once we're saved by that and given a new birth, we learn to love gradually the law of God and say, these aren't hard rules to, to be tough on me. These are rules to teach me the ways of blessing, that my life can walk in a way of blessing rather than a hardship path. We will not be preparing for our holy judge to appear in that last day by living with an attitude that says, well, I know I'm justified by God. I know I'm a forgiven sinner. I know at the final day he'll invite me to stand at his right hand, not his left. So it really doesn't matter that much how I live right now. We call that antinomianism, rejection of the law of God. Again, the law does not save us, but the law is that which is pursued in and reproduced in our life when we are of Christ, when the Holy Spirit indwells us. He teaches us to say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It's a blessing to me, not a curse. And so we're to be diligent about our walk with the Lord, getting ourselves ready so that living according to righteousness is something we're accustomed to. So when we come into this new heaven and new earth in which righteousness dwells, we won't be living in such a foreign land. If you knew you were enlisting for the Marine Corps and you were going to go to that infamous training at Paris Island and put your body, subject yourself to all the kinds of hardship and strict drill sergeants and everything else that that involves, I would advise you probably to get in training before you show up for the bus to Paris Island. Uh, You can't be in the shape I'm in and go to Paris Island. You'd be a dead man the first day. You better start some push-ups and sit-ups and runs and pull-ups and everything else and get ready to live in that environment. Well, Peter's saying, you're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Why not pursue righteousness now? As God has enabled you to do that by his Holy Spirit. And you'll get used to that land where you're going to dwell one day. Well, then secondly, something happens. This text is a little bit disjointed in that Peter seems to almost go off on a tangent here as he starts to talk about Paul and the writings 
of Paul. But in the second place, it seems to me he's saying, while awaiting Christ's return, be sure you realize that Holy Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, gives you a place to stand. You see, the apostles Peter and Paul were both strong men of the apostolic world. I grew up in a place in western New York where the local Roman Catholic parish was uh, St. Peter and Paul. I always thought it was interesting that, that uh, the leading men got their names at least on that local church. It wasn't, uh, you know, St. Hildegard of the Beloved Blood or something like that. that you, some of these names you hear sometimes, you wonder, who in the world is that? I had no trouble knowing who St. Peter and St. Paul were at the local church parish. Well, here are these two men who did intermingle in their apostolic ministry, and we know they both were strong-minded men. We know, in fact, that in Galatians 2.14, Paul mentions a place where he disagreed, vehemently disagreed with Peter, and he says, I had to confront Peter to his face over a doctrinal matter. You have the sense he did it in public and said, you are wrong, brother. And you might think that made a permanent forever breach between these two men. Maybe, maybe uh, Paul wasn't such a beloved brother to Peter, but he was just using a nice term that made it sound like everything was ooey-gooey and they were in good shape with each other. But not so. We believe Paul and Peter certainly did uh, clarify and work out whatever differences they may have had. Well, here's Peter saying, Paul has written much the same things I have. Sometimes when he speaks about these matters, I think by these matters he means prophetic issues, the return of Christ, uh, they're hard to understand. And so ignorant people twist those things. But what's so important here at the very end of verse 16 is something Peter says that's merely sort of a toss-off line that shines right off the page. They're able to twist these things to their destruction as they do other scriptures. Do you see how important that is? That just in a kind of a side, Peter is calling the writings of his fellow first century apostle Paul other scripture. He's saying, look, what Paul had to say is as much from the mind and the mouth of God the Holy Spirit as Isaiah was, or Deuteronomy, or Genesis, or Habakkuk, or any book of the Holy Scripture. Now, they wouldn't have had any problem if, if Peter had said, as, you know, the Scripture of the Old Testament. But he's saying, the writings of Paul are like other Scriptures. This is a tremendously important point being made in this little observation here. It's telling us that New Testament apostles apparently had a self-conscious understanding of themselves as vessels of the Holy Spirit being given the New Testament Scripture on a par with the Old Testament revelation. In other words, Old Testament and New Testament spoke with one unified voice to point to this great future reality of the day of the Lord. When Isaiah, who said a lot about the day of the Lord, was writing about it, just as much so when Paul wrote about it, here are things we can stand upon and accept and be confident that this is a revelation directly from God. That's a wonderful word that's hidden in that little phrase at the end of verse 16. 
Well, finally, I'll wrap up this treatment of Second Peter today and see Peter concluding with a benediction, a beautiful benediction. By the way, it's primarily a benediction to Christ himself rather than to the Trinity, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's just a little unusual that his benediction is totally exalting Christ rather than the Father, Son, and Spirit. But here is Peter, I suggest thirdly, in a sense, standing forth himself, the man Peter, as a grand example of what growing in grace ought to look like. Now, Peter isn't doing this in some exhibitionist way. I don't suggest that he's saying, if you want to know what growing in grace is, look at me. But I want to say to you, without him boasting that way, here he is. If you stop and think, who has written these two letters that we've been studying now for 28 sessions, and put him in context of what you know about him in the, in the Gospels and in the book of Acts, where would you find a man who had grown in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, if not Peter? I want to tell you that you probably haven't thought about this. If the question was asked on some Bible exam, tell me the names of three living men whose biographies are given the most extensive treatment, the most material, biographically speaking, in the entire Bible, who would those three be? I wonder what you would answer. Number one, of course, would be Jesus. There's more biographical information about Jesus than anyone else in the Bible. Do you, do you know in your mind who number two would be? David, the great king, the shepherd boy who became the king and the ancestor of Jesus. As far as I can count and match biographical material, Peter would be number three. He would be the third most prolific biography of the New Testament. And I want to just press that point for a moment because if you were to look up every passage about Simon Peter in the four Gospels and Acts and then these two letters, you watch a man just transform before your eyes. My wife and I were both reading books last night, but the TV was also on, and, and the, the Disney movie came on, Beauty and the Beast, and we just kind of left it on in the background. I hadn't watched that in ages. And it came to the part where the beast, you know, this man, he's like a huge man with hooves and fangs and everything else. Uh, I, you know the story. I'm not going to try to tell you the story, but there's the part at the very end where because now the, the girl, Belle, loves him, he is transformed from the beast back into the handsome prince, of course, that he always was. Disney always has a handsome prince hiding somewhere. And uh, so all this twinkle dust came, and the beast, you girls know about this, right? You know Beauty and the Beast. The, all of this pixie dust descended on him, and he transformed into the handsome prince. Well, Peter didn't have pixie dust, and it wasn't a fairy tale, and it didn't happen instantly. But he transformed before the eyes of people who knew him as Simon the fisherman to become Peter, the senior uh, apostle, with his tremendous authority and respect that he had in the apostolic age. And that happened over about a 30 or 35-year span of time. And it's a wonderful thing to behold in a my previous church, I, I once thought I was going to write a book about Peter that never got written, but uh, I did preach a sermon series, and my determination was I was going to preach on every passage 
that had anything to do with Peter. So I started in the Gospels, and any time Peter did or said anything, I preached on that passage consecutively through Book of Acts, through that, then through these letters. I don't even remember. I'd have to go back and look. It was 50 or more sermons, I'm pretty sure, um, that I followed Peter all the way through. And what I saw was a man who was blunt, outspoken, proud, strong-willed, selfish, many things that you could say negative about him as a fisherman as he started out. You wonder, why did Jesus ever select him? He was kind of a mess, actually. He was pretty bad raw material for key leadership. And yet Jesus looked to him, patiently worked with him, let Peter fall on his face, let him pull out the sword and slash somebody's ear, and said, no, Peter, that's not the way and so on, until gradually, gradually. You don't see it in the Gospels. You begin to see it a little in Acts. Then you really see it in these letters. Comes a man who is self-controlled, wise, godly, humble. What did all that? Grace. Thirty years of grace. And that's what this man has to say to us. Grow in grace. That's what happened to me. It's not just that I blew out a lot of candles on a lot of birthday cakes and got older and maybe got some sense because I'm now in AARP or something and rather than being a young whippersnapper. No, I've grown in grace. And it's the grace of God, Peter would say, if we got him to sit down for personal testimony that made me the man and the Christian that I am today. And I'm now dependent on that grace. Day by day, hour by hour. We sang the opening hymn today with that great line, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor daily I'm constrained to be. Not just for my new birth, not just for my initiation in the Christian life, but every day I'm a debtor to grace. The same thing that Paul said when he wrote about God working through his many failures and hard places. And he said that he heard Christ say, in effect, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul, and my power is perfected in your weakness. Peter, the young fisherman, had little or no real dependence on God or his grace. He was almost entirely, 100%, dependent on himself. I called to mind a phone call I had with a young woman many years ago. Attractive young woman, highly intelligent, came from a fine family, grew up in the church I was pastoring. When she was about 22 and graduating from a well-pedigreed, respectable college, we didn't see her too much anymore in the church those days, even on vacations. And, you know, she had internships and jobs and all that. But then she had graduated, and we still didn't see her, and I knew she was in the community. I called her. had had a little contact with her. And I uh, said, hey, you know, we're missing you. You joined the church at age 13. You promised to support the church in its worship and work, and that's good for you, too. We've missed you. She was pretty blunt. We've got other college students who would think this way, and be saying in their hearts the same thing, but she said it more bluntly than just about anybody ever has to me. They don't say the honest things to me. They say it to somebody else. 
But she said, Pastor, the last thing I need in my life right now is God and the Bible and that, all those mythological stories. I don't need God or Jesus or your Bible. This from a young lady who at 13 had said, I believe in Christ. I believe I'm a sinner saved by grace. I need the church. I promise to be part of it. The world in her fine college had told her, no, what you need to be is independent. You need to be self-sufficient. And she expressed that pretty bluntly. And it seemed to me that not even the new birth of grace had ever happened in her. I was sad for her. She wasn't growing in grace, that's for sure. She hadn't apparently had a supernatural birth by the Holy Spirit. She hadn't even learned the first textbook lesson that Peter learned when God gave him a new life and caused him to grow in grace. Just as we leave this letter of 2 Peter, I'd like you to just take your Bible, if it's still near you there, and open it to 1 Peter, where this odyssey with Peter started. 1 Peter, just a few pages back. Chapter 1, I'm just going to read verses 3 to 5. It seemed to me then, I told you when we started, that Peter was charting the course of what he was going to tell us. Let's see if he, he accomplished that. First Peter 1, 3 and following, he writes to those who are, quote, born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. If that describes you, then you've begun with Christ. I trust and hope that his new birth has occurred in you. And I hope that you're growing in grace. I hope that you're hungry to know more and more so that you can say like Paul did in Philippians 3 where he cried out like an exclamation of longing and Paul said, Oh, that I might know him, that I might know the power of his resurrection. I don't think Paul was saying, I've never known it at all. I'm, I'm a stranger to it. I think he was saying, I've tasted it, and I want more and more and more of Jesus Christ. The grace transformation that God brought in men like Paul and Peter is a marvelous thing. The grace transformation that God is bringing about in many, many of you is a marvelous thing. The grace transformation that God might start this week in some seven-year-old or nine-year-old's heart within our vacation Bible school will be a marvelous thing to behold. We don't seem to get it that God is still doing this work. He's still making Peter's and Paul's and Mary Magdalene's and all the others as the means of grace. You know that phrase? You know what, we, what we're saying when we talk about the means of grace? Those practical ways in which grace keeps us on the bicycle of the Christian life moving forward. What are the means of grace? Reading Scripture. Praying. Joining in corporate worship with others. Being part of the Lord's Supper. Regularly giving thanks and praise to God. Interceding in others for, with prayer serving others. These are ways that God's grace keeps 
working its way into our lives. They are heaven's conduits for the life energy of God, mercy and grace, to work in ordinary people like Simon Peter to become his instruments in this world. The last and best word from the letters of Peter is his own word. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Father, thank you for these letters. Thank you for this man. He's a real man. We can believe the man that he was. An earthy man, a, a man who was, who was sometimes rude, a man who uh, resorted to violence, a man who said things with a curse at times. But he was a man you used, you transformed by your grace at work in his life. Thank you for the picture we have of him in the Scripture and the instructor that he's been to us over these weeks. Father, work your grace. Here are people in all different stages. Some surely with us who have never been born again. Others newly born. Others perhaps well along. Others maybe nearing the end of their earthly life. But we all need to grow in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, Father, keep us going forward. We have no grace except as you give it. We praise you for giving it in Jesus' name. Amen.